Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, a locally based nonprofit that's been creating opportunities for communities in the South kicks off its 20th State of the South tour in Durham. Find out how MDC is continuing to create equity and how you can get involved. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. North Carolina is a southern state. You probably knew that. But how does our distinct geography also inform us about our challenges, opportunities, and as today's guests have studied, our possibilities? This year, MDC sets off on a tour called The State of the South, Reclaiming Southern Heritage and History, a series of convenings to explore systems that govern voter engagement and access, gentrification and displacement, and equitable economic development. Take a look around the Triangle, the Triad, Charlotte, even areas once considered rural, and you will see that these issues figure prominently, and they greatly impact black, brown, and native communities. I want to welcome John, John Simpkins, president and CEO of MDC. John is a scholar of constitutional law and former counsel to the Obama, Obama administration. I also want to welcome Dr. Adrian D. Lentz-Smith, associate professor of history at Duke University. So excited to have both of you with us today. John, MDC is a nonprofit based in Durham and established back in 1967 as part of Governor San uh, Terry Sanford's anti-poverty program. Since then, you've brought together foundations, nonprofits, and leaders in government and private industry around a report that provides data to help them find solutions to some of the region's biggest problems. And in a recent presentation, John, you talked about possibilities as opposed to opportunities. Let's dig right in with that um, and mentioning at the top that, that we see North Carolina as one of the top areas to live in and um, building is really off the charts. Uh, are opportunities here and possibilities reaching diverse communities in our state? Well, Deb, first, thank you for having me on the show. And um, I'd, I'd want to say that no, uh, opportunities or possibilities are, are not truly available to the broadest range of our community. And when I talk about possibility as opposed to opportunity, think of it like a menu. If you look at a menu and there are 15 items on the menu, but you can only afford two, uh, it's, you have the opportunity to order anything on the menu, but it's not possible for you to have everything on the menu. We want people to live choice-filled lives. And uh, we believe that there's a greater opportunity for more people in North Carolina and the 13 states that we serve to have lives a real possibility where they can, they can live into their true talents. And, and that's what we're really focused on at MDC as, as we uh, launch the State of the South effort, which is really a reimagination. It's, it's no longer just a report it's an opportunity to engage with the public through the work that we do, as well as learn from uh, the experts who live these conditions every day. So there are so many reports out there and conversations and groups. What exactly is the effective work of MDC? How does it actually work? MDC really focuses on three areas. We, we do research. Uh, and, and analysis to inform uh, systems change. 
and uh, we look at how systems operate and, and then seek to make those systems produce better outcomes by changing the way those systems work. And then we, pre we prepare people to be leaders in those new systems and in those different systems. So it's this combination of research and framing, systems design for systems change, and equity-centered leadership. Leaders who think differently, who work collaboratively, who approach their task humbly and understand that they're constantly learning. Uh, the way that manifests itself in, in reality in uh, North Carolina specifically, uh, for example, is a, a program that, that we've uh, engaged in in partnership with the United Way of Greater Greensboro, the Guilford Success Network. That network is intended to connect individuals in the Greater Greensboro area to state and federal supports that will give them an opportunity to move out of their current conditions. What we find uh, across the South, not just in North Carolina, is that often the uh, supports that are available to individuals go unused or unaccessed because people don't have the time uh, to sit in, a, in an office and apply and, and, and ensure that they're eligible for everything. We've, we've eliminated that by taking what we call a no wrong door approach. When you apply for one, one system of support, you're immediately introduced to everything that you're eligible for and you can apply to all of those opportunities at one time so that uh, you don't have to go back to another appointment, take time off of work. We wanna streamline that process and then actually use those supports to give you an opportunity to save money, to get a, a down payment on a car, to get a deposit on, a, on an apartment, to, to take an extra course that's gonna allow you to move up the ladder at work. We think that all of these are realistic opportunities. They're actually budget neutral. We're not asking for, for new money to do this. We're, we're really trying to take advantage of the money that we currently put into these systems that often goes unused. So in many ways, working behind the scenes, people probably don't even know that MDC is doing those things. So thank you for sharing. And you mentioned systems. Adrian, um, it seems that we continue to be challenged by the existing systems that we're operating in, wineskins, if you will, that kind of neutralize well-intended high-impact programs or solutions. What are some of those systems and programs um, specifically, you know, perhaps in education, criminal justice, housing? Sure. So I think it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about, so I'm, a, I'm an African-American historian. I'm a historian of Jim Crow, right? So pre-civil rights era into the civil rights era. And when we talk about Jim Crow or what the architects of it actually called loudly and proudly white supremacy, we are actually talking about a, a, a policy system, right? It's about it was about legislation, it was about allocation of power and resources, and it was built by legislature, legislators and policymakers, right? Um, and so the, th the things that we are working with now, the policies, the structures, are inheritances from a previous time when the system was designed to hold resources and power in the hands of a very small few. Not white people, broadly speaking, but a small subset of white people, right? You see that then in the way that what was once a dual educational system in which the black side, in a segregated educational system, the black side was poorly, poorly resourced, 
you know, when there were, were schools, they stopped at 11th grade, which then limited where people could go to school afterwards and kind of how they could be educated. Um, sort of worse infrastructure for black students, you know, teacher pay, not at all equal. Um, and we have sort of moved to rectify things like that in education a little bit, but without fully reckoning with the extent of the inequity to begin with. Similarly, we talk now, we know that we have a problem of mass incarceration. We know that that is a combination of design and accident. Um, but I think it's important to remember that the, the forms of imprisonment and policing that were designed in the South after emancipation were largely designed to be about controlling black labor, right? And, then, and the language of black criminality that emerged in the South and elsewhere that was crafted, again, by kind of white media and, 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 and white um, legislators was also kind of a byproduct of an attempt to make sure that African Americans stayed in their place. We still traffic in the language of black criminality too often without thinking about its origin um, and the ideological and practical work that it's done. We are still building on a system of incarceration that did not begin with rehabilitation or safety in mind so much as it did labor control. And then finally, I'd say about housing that we, I mean, so I live in Durham, I love Durham. I am excited in many ways for the ways that Durham is growing and developing. It's also the case that Durham, as many places in the South, have a long history of, of cordoning off places where people of color could live and might live through restrictive covenants, through where folks could get loans, or where we talk about redlining or things like that. Also, a newer history, but an ugly history, of selling people houses that weren't going to build as much value, right? So also shoving black homeowners into, um, in, into sort of questionable buys through, through loan practices and things like that. We haven't quite talked and reckoned with, we haven't undone that history even as we now see these processes of gentrification when those same homeowners who had tenuous holds um, through loaning practices on the houses that they've bought have been pushed out by real estate developers, either individuals or big companies, who are figuring out how to, who have the material resources to flip um, those houses and build their own wealth in these places that used to be kind of bedrocks of other folks' communities. Thank you so much for laying all that out. It was so important just to hear that, that explanation um, because as we look around, John, indeed there is progress, there's development, and while many communities of color are focused on and need to focus on just getting the rights and access that, that we deserve, Development continues, the world continues to change, and we're talking about these systems that continue to be in place. Is there anything that the um, MDC is doing um, to target specific systems and unravel them um, in order to create you know, those possibilities that you talked about? Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's first the, the example that I gave in, in Greensboro, that, that network will launch 
uh, within the next month or so. And, and the hope is to, to pull 3,000 families out of poverty. If you think of, uh, of an employer coming into a community saying we can provide 3,000 jobs, that would, that would be a monumental impact on that community. And, and we hope to see the same kind of impact uh, in Greensboro through this work, and then to take that model to other communities. In addition, we think about where are the other levers that, that impact all of these conditions that Adrian laid out so well. And one of those levers is philanthropy. Uh, philanthropy is uh, a supplement, a complement to government, but not a replacement for government. And, and at the moment, I think too much is being asked of philanthropy and it's not clear that philanthropy is ready to, to meet those challenges uh, in, in any case. So we created something that we call the Passing Gear Philanthropy Institute. And that's really uh, an opportunity to engage with foundations across the country to help them think about how to infuse equity into their grant making practices, how they think about evaluating projects that they're engaged in and what time means to them not on a quarterly basis, but, but a longer time horizon for those investments. Uh, the Passing Gear Philanthropy Institute will be uh, repurposed as the equity-centered philanthropy institute as we think about how do we place equity at the center of these practices as a way of shifting the systems that Adrian described. So those are two of the ways in which we, we look to engage directly in, in these uh, large, uh, often in, intractable problems that have been plaguing us for decades. And the work that you're doing has got to be so important because even people who are in foundations who are supporting the work of nonprofits that are trying to target um, some of these communities that are in despair, some of the individuals working in those foundations don't get it. They don't have... Um, uh, they, they might have a skewed view about what, how resources need to be allocated. So, so the work of, uh, of kind of collaborating with them and educating folks at foundations and in philanthropy is, is very valuable. And, and Adrian, I want to um, bring you in on this question. Uh, we only have about a minute and a half, I think. Um, but do you think that democracy in our nation is in fragile condition compared to where we were, say, 50 years ago? I mean, we, we look around and we, and we see that things are so desperate or we feel like they're desperate, but, but how does it compare, do you think? I do think that democracy is in fragile condition compared to 50 years ago. I mean, think about it. 50 years ago, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were new, and people were committed to bringing them to the ground so that they did their work, broadly speaking. We've come to a moment or an era um, five-plus decades later where... Some folks decided that the Voting Rights Act didn't apply anymore in this very region where the disfranchisement of people of color and large swaths, actually, of white people who got caught up in the net, um, where that, that was the sort of foundation, disfranchisement was the foundation for all of the other inequities that we've talked about, um, which means that with the Voting Rights Act divested of its power, there is the possibility that such structures can get put back into place without people having the capacity to push back um, and, and stop them from happening. So I worry about the anti-democratic trend that I see is kind of happening broadly. I'd love your thoughts on this too, John. 
you know, I as a as a constitutional scholar and a, and a a student of constitutional design, I, I think we're at a a perilous point. Um, we have seen this before. I, I call it the second redemption. It's a it's a version of what we saw in South Carolina and other states across the South after Reconstruction, when there was literally an overthrow of democratically elected governments, and and we we've, we've already seen attempts uh, at that uh, at the national level. Well, we know that the upcoming convenings kick off in Durham uh, on October the 27th. And uh, I hope that people will engage because it promises a great conversation and a great um, education. John Simpkins, Dr. Adrian Lentz-Smith, thank you for your leadership and your scholarship. Thank you. Thank you. Artistic expression plays a strong role in moves towards social and economic equity and justice. Maybe that's why the kickoff event for the True South State of the South Tour in Durham is an evening performance and dialogue at Haytai Heritage Center. Joining us now are two of the evening performers, choreographer and dance artist Alexandra Joy Warren, founder and artistic director at Joy Movement, grounded in history, exploring the future. She's also an assistant professor of performing arts at Elon University and director choreographer for their music theater program. And also we have Marcus Kaiser, an artist and graphic designer. So excited to have the two of you joining us as well. I'm sure it's gonna be an outstanding performance, very exciting. And Alexandra and Mark, uh, starting with you first, Alexandra, tell us a little bit about your studio, your art, and how your work um, as an artist intersects with social justice work and equity. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. Um, my company started in 2014, and we really explore the stories of folks from the African diaspora, and inherently those stories often intersect with social justice. Um, some of my dance works explore things like the consequences of the North Carolina eugenics program. What does American patriotism look like for descendants of enslaved people? And um, just other topics that are relevant to me and my experience. So oftentimes those, those things are somehow, you know, connected. And so I'm really excited that I'm able to process and explore things through art that help me to understand things that are complicated and express myself and express um, emotions that are, are really uh, complex through art. It's great to have that that art form to be able to kind of get some of that energy out because there's a lot going on in our world and, and people are needing to, to de-stress. But as an artist, um, I would imagine you're able to just kind of take that and really embrace it. And that comes out in your in your dance and in your work. Yes. yes. So, Mark, can you talk about your work as well, your art and your studio? Uh, yeah. First off, thank you for having me on the platform this morning. Um, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a multimedia designer and illustrator, graphic designer. And uh, this, the way we spoke about how these systems are, are designed um, I like to consider my work as like a, I'm a visual storyteller that likes to connect community. So a lot of, you know, I have a history in design, um, but I like to use art to engage and connect. And how do we tell the history, the history of a lot of spaces of color, particularly uh, black spaces. 
Um, and then I just, you know, you know, how do we apply the market, like from, from a standpoint of graphic design and marketing, you know, we're always creating things to sell, to sell lifestyles, to sell images, but like, how do we sell systematic change through, through visual languages? Um, and how that's indeed. pretty much the base. That's pretty much the cornerstone of my work. So I take my design thinking and I use it to, you know, help and build, you know, better futures or whatnot. Wow. You know, I think about, you know, the art that I see around me and, and Alexandra, you know, where do you see the influence of art giving that voice that Marcus talked about to black communities um, in the South? Yeah, um, art allows us to, gives us the space to process our present circumstances. And it also allows me to be able to imagine a new future. A future is not only where we exist, but we also thrive in. Um, and so I think that space and creating that, it's not only just for me and for my other artists that work with me, but it's also for everyone that experiences the art. Um, I, I'm often inspired by other forms like novels, films, visual art, um, so on and so forth. And so those things really bring me into new spaces and give me imagination. So my hope is that my, my work to, can do the same. And I think, I think that sometimes art pushes things forward faster than policy or law, <laughs> unfortunately. Wow, that, that's a really um, provocative proposition. You know, it, I, I'd love for you to think about any art forms that you think have pushed policy um, and, um, and while you think about that, Marcus, we have a poster that you worked on. Sometimes you're able to partner with an organization and get a message out. Can you talk a little bit about the um, economic development campaign that you worked on for the city of Charlotte government? Uh, yes. Yeah, so actually, I was working with a uh, Solid, who is a Solid is a PR agency here in Charlotte. Um, shout out to Tracy Russ. I'm great friends with him. So he he approached me, and he you know they were applying for, um, they were trying to lock down a new economic growth campaign for Charlotte, and they had this idea of how do we reimagine re Queen Charlotte. Um, and like as Alexandra spoke, like, you know, talking about the future and reimagining these things, um, but also understanding like the history and the past of where these things come from. Um, you know, I sort of took a wild stab at Queen Charlotte. I made her, I made her a black woman. Uh, we gave her a motorcycle. It was really, uh, you know, to me, that stuff's not radical, but um, I guess in corporate spaces, that stuff seems kind of radical or whatnot. But um, but yeah, it was a cool campaign, and I, I've redesigned it. Actually, they didn't. The campaign didn't get used, so I want to say that too. So, wow. but despite it not being used, um, you know, that's still one of my favorite projects. And this is this idea of like, how do we reimagine? Like, I love the idea of reimagining and then turning that thing into a vintage movie poster style design. Mm -hmm. um, that was like one of my favorite projects. Yeah, it, it's pretty powerful. Um, her on that motorcycle with that crown, uh, very imaginative. Um, natural I, hair too, uh, you know, I had to give her the natural hair oh yeah. and just, you know, I loved it. Oh yeah, it, it's a great poster. Um, wish they had used it. Um, uh, Alexandra, 
you know, sometimes I, I know I'd asked you about, you, you know, other forms of art that we've seen that maybe pushed policy. I think about the Black Lives Matter um, uh, paintings and murals, the, the big one. And I wonder, you know, where, where did we get with that, though? Um, sometimes people get satisfied by bringing in the art, the murals and the, you know, the street paintings. But then where, where's the policy effect? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that it's not enough, right? It's a beginning, it's a conversation. It's, it depends on, you know, what, what the circumstances are. But I, I know for me, when I'm creating things, the things that I, I just, my hope is always to rearrange context. And so when I'm making work, I, I, my hope is that audience members will be able to see things from a different perspective. And one of one example is seeing how an audience member will come up to me and say, wow, you know, um, I really never thought about something that way. And you really changed my perspective on, you know, how how interactions with the police and and black men might be. And and that really, you know, that one to one, it does, I don't know, you know, what what that person will take that information or where they will apply that. But, you know, as long as I'm I'm becoming healed. You know, I think I'm important in terms of the process and as well as the artists with me, um, you know, that one to one sometimes is is a huge impact. And what do you think of the impact of the art, Marcus? Um, I think art has a huge impact. Um, you know, there are many ways that we can as artists, you know, some of us use art as a way to express ourselves. Uh, it can it can help with mental health. But I think people seeing visual things uh, can really affect community, and it's how you tie those things together. And for me, I, I just want to make a better world visually. Marcus Kaiser, Alexander Joy Warren, thank you so much for your talents and your continued work for equity. And we want to thank you for joining us and invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any, at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. We'll see you next time. Quality Public Television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.